do we suffer? What is consciousness? What is evidence and causation? How does science work? What is health? What does it mean to have good health? What is meaning and purpose of life? Philosophers chatting with clinicians is an opportunity to drop in on the complex, challenging and exciting conversations that can happen when the two worlds of philosophy and clinical practice collide. So settle in and enjoy as we explore some of the big questions about being human with pain. So can you hear in everything all right? I can hear you fine. Mm -hmm. And you can hear me okay also? I yeah. can hear you fine. That's exciting. Wow. And how, how is everybody? Yeah, doing good. My, my bookshelves look um, sort of depressing compared to Roger's because I'm <laughs> in the new office, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask about the empty bookshelf. I was going to ask whether it was like a statement or a... <laughs> <laughs> This is just wallpaper anyway, with, with book effects. <laughs> yeah, also, I do have to explain, this is not a sex swing. This is a toddler swing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did say it's recording, didn't you? I did. <laughs> but I've had some funny, funny questions when I've been talking to people online about the, uh, the swing sex. dangling in the background. <laughs> Amsterdam and everything. <laughs> Okay, so what, what, what are we doing then? Well, yeah, so this is the first time this has actually happened. So it's a bit of an experiment. And um, I guess the idea is I've been really lucky to sit in some rooms where we've had uh, philosophers talking with other clinicians. And I've been one of those clinicians rattling away with it within those groups. And the conversations that come from it are so good. And so interesting and exciting that I just thought it would be really cool if we could bring that together. Um, because I think particularly in like healthcare and med medicine, we don't get taught about philosophy or ethics or very much. And I think it would be really nice if we could try and sort of start bringing those two worlds together. Uh, how does that sound? Sounds good. Yeah, good. So, as it's called Philosophers Chatting with Clinicians, perhaps Adam, you would go first um, and just say a little bit about, you know, who you are, where you are right now, um, your current area of work and what you're interested in at the moment. Okay. Yeah, so uh, my name is Adam Shriver. I um, am currently a research fellow at the UHERO Center for Practical Ethics and the Welcome Center for Ethics and Humanities. Um, my background is in philosophy, although I graduated from an interdisciplinary program called PNP, Philosophy, Neuroscience, Psychology. So um, we had some training and sort of cognitive science type stuff. Um, so a lot of my work's been pretty interdisciplinary. And um, the place where I intersect with pain is uh, sort of philosophy of mind type questions about pain, but then trying to apply those questions back into um, bioethics questions and, and sort of thinking about 
um, how our understanding of pain informed by science can, can answer some questions that come up in ethical debates. Yeah, I've been reading some of your papers and yeah, that is a big, big question to try and answer. And it seems like your work spans across like the human and the non-human domain, which I think just goes to show the complexity of the pain experience. And that's, so that's really been a really exciting reading journey for me as well. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, our Raj. <laughs> Would you introduce yourself, please, Roger? Okay, nothing as impressive as Adam. So it's good. It's really good to meet you, Adam. I've met Laura before. Um, so, well, I'm a, I'm a physiotherapist by trade. Uh, I trained many many years ago, and then worked clinically, and then ended up working as what. I don't know what they call now, but it, it was like clinical specialist role in orthopedic and emergency. Um, and then then started at the University of Nottingham predominantly as in, in sort of teaching research roles. And now it's all a bit of a mix of teaching, research, clinical work, photocopying, those, those sorts of things. Um, so clinical work is really restricted to assessment and um, some some sort of re running rehab, but you know obviously pain's pain is itself is central to all that. Uh, in between all that, just for just for Adam's sort of interest, really, I, I I did do my PhD in the Department of Philosophy at Nottingham. Um, not your sort of philosophy. I I was supervised by a guy called Stephen Mumford who's um philosopher of science um so I was I was really interested in some philosophy of science stuff with regards to evidence-based medicine and then and then since then we developed the cause health project which was led by another philosopher who's Ronnie Anjum in Norway at the University of Life Sciences um and that's attracted a lot I think I think that's what you're referring to a bit as well, Laura, isn't it? That's attracted a lot of physiotherapy interested in this sort of that edge of, of philosophy. And it's and there's some really great um, thinking clinicians. So I, re I do really like this idea that you're that you're setting up here. So see what we can make of it. Wicked. That's lovely. Thank you very much. Um, so perhaps it would be nice. Um, Adam, if you could explain a little bit more about um, sort of what, is it bioethics or neuroethics that you're working in or is it the same thing? Uh, I, I guess both. I, I, um, there are sort of debates about whether neuroethics is just a subfield of bioethics, but um, I would sort of do both of those things. And so bioethics, I think, is just sort of practical ethics questions that come up um, in the course of uh, the practice of medicine and research. And then neuroethics um, is, depending on who you ask, is either the sort of version of that that deals specifically with neuroscience or it uh, involves sort of unique questions that come up as you're looking at sort of how the human brain works. And, um, you know, arguably that creates sort of different types of questions because it involves how we understand ourselves and sort of how we think about, you know, what it means to be human and to have a mind. And so 
you know, so neuroethics raises some different questions. So I, I would do both, or I'm involved in both of those fields, uh, basically, is the short answer, I guess. But I'm interested in how people become philosophers. Like, what, what does that look like? So, you know, you're, what, 15, thinking, I know what I want to do with my life. I'm going to be a philosopher. <laughs> how does that work? I don't know does that, yeah. Uh, maybe there are some people, but um, yeah, uh, I guess for me, I just started out in, uh, studying computer science, actually, and then realized that I just enjoyed um, philosophical questions a lot more than um, what I was doing in computer science. Um, but I think, uh, I th so, so I guess what I think of philosophy, or at least, you know, a certain variety of philosophy is addressing or trying to answer questions that you can't get at um, through other methods of discovering knowledge that that have been validated more easily right so it's sort of like if you look at the kind of history of intellectual thought uh, there are philosophers who sort of branch off into other fields like uh, you know Aristotle doing biology or psychology and and once we figure out a good way of sort of you know, systematically addressing those questions, they kind of become their own field and sort of branch off from philosophy and philosophy is sort of left with sort of, you know, groping around in the dark a little bit more. Uh, but, but I think it's, it's interesting in that it's trying to sort of come up with the best systematic ways of looking at these questions that are really difficult that we don't know the answer to and that we're not going to be, be able to easily provide an answer that everyone agrees with. Uh, but trying to approach those uh, questions in a very systematic way, in a way that, um, you know, starts from assumptions that people would mostly agree with and tries to use arguments to, to reach conclusions about that, uh, that, that people find, uh, well, you may, you may or may not find the conclusions uh, as intuitive as the premises that you start out with, but, but the idea is just to, to try to address these questions in a systematic way that, um, that uh, uh, addresses important things. And there are certain types of questions. So I think when it comes to pain specifically, um, the sort of two big types of questions that I see with pain are um, philosophy of mind type questions. So questions about what the nature of pain is and what the nature of conscious experience is. And um, those types of questions, although there's a lot of science that's relevant for those questions and, and that's trying to get at those questions, I don't think we know enough yet to sort of fully answer the questions. And so that's why philosophy kind of comes in and trying to describe how these weird mental properties are related to the physical world. Uh, but, all, but those types of questions, I think even though philosophy is relevant now, it wouldn't shock me if at some point in the future, really it was just sort of science that tells us most of what we need to know about those things. But then there are ethical questions about why do we care about pain? Um, is pain always a bad thing? Should we think of pain as sometimes being good and sometimes bad? Um, you know, what aspect of the painful experience is the one that we find morally important? And those types of questions I think, can never really be addressed purely from a descriptive point of view. You, you have to sort of bring in normative assumptions or questions about what it means to value things in the world. And so I sort of see those questions as always having a kind of fundamental philosophical uh, element to them. It, it 
certainly to me anyway, once I started reading about these kind of questions, particularly around like philosophy of mind, it was like a kind of, felt like, I felt like Alice falling into the hole, into the rabbit hole. It was just like, you, you just, you want to just go faster and faster and faster and, and into these questions. But it's very difficult when you don't have the background or the skills, because you're still trying to use skill sets that are based on a sort of um, more scientific or practical pragmatic level of trying to measure and you know is this right or wrong and and how do I apply it and you know so that was a, an interesting journey for me um, and it sounds like it something really caught you as well when you were younger and it sort of captured your interest and passion and imagination and took you on this journey. I, I was just um, curious about stuff um sort of post hoc really after we'd you know trained and become scientific scientifically minded and lots of clinical experience and sort of accepting all that to to a degree and then and then I think I started to think about things and ask questions that then like, like Adam was saying you realize can't there are some questions in the world that can't be answered by 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 science or non-philosophical way so, so you have to start thinking a bit differently and I never thought um, I I never sort of consciously thought oh I'll tell you what I, I wouldn't mind doing some philosophy I was just curious about these questions in my case they were questions about how how do we know things in in health research you know what 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 are some of the deeper issues to ask about that that you can't uh, you can't really answer with science do randomised control trials work, for example, by doing some science to see if they see if the outcomes are true? Or not? Then, you, of course, that paradox of inquiry, you you don't get anywhere. So you have to ask other questions. Um, and back to your thing, Laura, that you said earlier about we you know we don't really as clinicians we don't really get training on this sort of things. So and one of one of the biggest shocks to me moving from from the sciences to the humanities was the clarity of thought i mean we we think we're being fairly precise and and systematic with science but it really does come a quite of a shock to to really think about the things you're saying and the words you use and the meaning of them and as adam was saying you know developing an argument in a in a in a proper way is a world away from from what was i mean i've i've always been a proponent of i think all all subjects should be underpinned with some sort of foundation foundational training in philosophy uh or i mean call it what you like i mean one, one problem is you start using words like philosophy and suddenly people react against that and say well one it's um, not not relevant or, or two it's full of big words or whatever or three well i prefer science more than philosophy or something like that you know, obviously all of those are missing the point. So if there's a way, if there's a way of integrating, um, you know, I like this idea, a, a colleague of mine at Nottingham, Stephen Timmons always talks about philosophy as this thing that sort of paves the way and opens the sort of clearing and the forest for, for science to do its work. You know, you, you do your thinking and sort out problems, science does, it work, does its work, reveals more issues. You know, these things uh, work together. 
And I think something like physics, where you get experimental physics and theoretical physics is a good example. But in our game, once you start talking about theory and non-evidence-based non um, assumptions and things, every, everybody starts to, to sort of lose interest or, as I say, react against it. Um, but we, we really should relate theory much more to science and, and, and practice. And onto the pain thing, you know, my fascinated by Adam's work um, way way beyond my level of un understanding but I really like um, you know the the Le pub scientific thing I did in in London I sort of um, challenged myself really there so Adam I did, I did a talk about whether robots could ever experience pain or not and really it was that wasn't the point the, the, the point was to try and get a wider discussion going on about what pain is and and how we how we relate consciousness to what we know from neuroscience and things like that but i mean the discussion in the room was was great it was full of full of clinicians and there were some really healthy healthy things coming out of it so so i'm fascinated by your non non-human uh work it, you know that that really forces the issue and pushes us to think a bit harder about about what we think is going on or Thanks. Uh, that that sounds like a really uh, interesting panel. I wish I, I wish I could have seen how it how it came out. Did you did you get a consensus from the audience about whether they thought robots could feel pain or what what would what would need to be required in order to be convinced? No, we we ended up in a far worse place than where where we started. Yeah, uh, with it, which I suppose was was part of it. But also, you know, it was good to have some discussions on the the ethics about that. You know, even things like you know, what if what are the ethical implications if robots could feel pain? Do they do they, do they suddenly obtain all all the rights? And, that humans have, or, you know, things like this, which goes back to, to one of the sort of questions that Laura put up on the email earlier about, you know, how, do, how should we treat people as clinicians? How, how does our behavior with people change in, in, the, in the presence of, of new, new knowledge about consciousness or um, what pain is um, or isn't, is not. And I don't, again, I, I don't, necessarily think as clinicians we we always think at that level we do our job and we've learned how to do our job and we learned how to communicate with people and we try and squeeze everything in in into that rather than using new knowledge to think about right how does this now change my behavior now how i communicate so i, th I think those issues of ethics and communication and consciousness and, and cognition are all really they're all really impactful things at a, at a shop floor level. It's just that we don't we don't readily appreciate that they should be. So, yeah, that's really interesting. So that kind of reminds me. So um, one of my uh, colleagues who I've collaborated with on a few things is Marat um, Idade, who's a philosopher who who works a lot on um, the definition of pain. And so one thing that sort of come up in his research is he's sort of a defender of the IESP definition of pain um, but it's interesting to see different viewpoints on um, on that definition of sort of the best way to define it and I've always thought there's a little bit of a tension between how maybe philosophers would want to define pain where they basically like the way analytic philosophy works is like if you come up with this definition what that's 
that describes the necessary and sufficient conditions of pain. So whatever this definition is, everything that meets it, um, you know, counts as pain and everything that doesn't meet it count is not a pain. But of course, you know, in the real world things get complicated. And it seems like um, maybe in clinical practice, I, I don't know this for sure, I want to hear your thoughts, but in clinical practice, there, there might be more of a need to have a more pragmatic definition of what pain is, like a, a definition that sort of gives you a sort of uh, definition that you can use that helps you to treat people and sort of know how to deal with patients in a certain way, um, but maybe is not the same thing that philosophers would necessarily be looking for. Um, so I'm, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are on, on that sort of. Well, that, that's really interesting because I, I was reading your, uh, your letter in pain where you sort of de deconstruct that definition of, of um, nociplastic pain and there's a couple of things was happening as I was reading it one I was fascinated by the way you'd, you'd undertaken that that analytical process to to um, examine that that definition um, but also I was thinking how what would uh, you know what would a, um, a, a typical clinician make of this who would perhaps read stuff in that journal in, in pain um, and midway, I, I thought, you know, there's, there's the possibility that a, a clinician would start to think that there's some, this, this is some sort of irrelevant um, discussion going on here. But I, th I think that's a mistake because, I, again, I think it's this clarity of thought um, and, and clarity of thinking that that's clear in your philosophical treatment of that definition but would seem a bit irrelevant to a clinician but actually when you when you read what you said in you know i'm just using that letter for an example you've got lots of examples i think it's a lesson for clinicians to um to make I don't want to make everybody sound that they don't think or they're lazy or something. I'm just saying because we come from such a different background, it's hard to appreciate why you would go to the efforts of, um, and, and you know, treat, treating a simple definition like that and what, and what it means. But I think we should make the effort to try and understand what's what's being said here. And yeah, and you try and sort of separate the sort of operational bit, the, the sort of real world bit if you like from your philosophical bit um and but i th i think your um your revised definition in this case of nociplastic pain is is really relevant i think it's really clinically relevant and it teaches us a lesson again about you know things like things don't necessarily need to be defined by what they're not and um in in and it's great that you give a clinical example of what you mean um, by that as well. So I, th I think this, especially some parts of analytical philosophy are, are desperately important for us. We go around with definitions in our mind and saying words and often we, ju we just make such huge assumptions about what they mean. Um, and because somebody in the authority has given that definition, we often just accept things and be done with it but I think this is like a master class that just that little letter is almost like a master class in perhaps how we could you know how we could really develop the way we think about 
simple definitions and things at least. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's interesting. Thanks, thanks for saying that. It's really, Mariah has really uh, took the lead on that. So I, I don't want to claim credit for that. But to, just to give another example of where of how I see this tension maybe playing out. So, um, so a friend of mine, Ken Craig, is a pain phys uh, clinician uh, at the University of British Columbia. And he's really adamant that the definition of pain should include some reference to there being a social component of pain, mm -hmm. right? And uh, I think that's a really nice way of sort of bringing out this tension because I could see from a, from a clinical perspective, there are all kinds of social dynamics that change treatment and impact treatment and like if people have support that makes a huge difference or if they feel ignored that makes a huge difference so there's all these social dimensions that you could see why pragmatically it makes sense to have you know to say there's a social component of pain in the pain definition if that makes it more sort of apparent to uh, clinicians or other people involved in treatment that they're that they need to take the social aspect seriously but some but from the sort of philosophical perspective where you're trying to come up with this list of necessary and sufficient conditions, you might say, um, well, could we imagine it being the case that someone has a pain that doesn't have any social dimension at all, or, or maybe not even a human, just some other being that's like a solitary species that doesn't, you know, non-mammalian or whatever, it's just solitary. Um, could we imagine them still having a pain? And I think you know, we could still imagine them, and maybe there are even examples in the in the world. And so, the philosopher might say, "Well, we shouldn't build in this notion of social into the definition because it doesn't seem like it's a necessary part of what it means to have a pain." Um, but that would sort of conflict a little bit with the sort of pragmatic reasons you might have for saying, "Well, we should talk about we should have, include this social dimension because that uh, that tells us that we should care about this thing that's going to be pretty important for most." for treatment of almost any person that we're talking about, so. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of uh, confusion, isn't there, about um, the place of definitions, diagnoses, or um, care frameworks as such. I mean, the, the way I would sort of interpret what you've just been saying is somebody's trying to, to take components of a of a healthcare model like the biopsychosocial model and like squeeze that into a definition of one of the things that sits at the center of that model which is painful experience and um i, th I think we've got um the tendency to try and make things simple and clear and and as easy to understand as possible so if you could do something like have a definition of pain that incorporates all the elements of a complex health care model like the biopsychosocial model that that would make life easy but like like you say from a philosopher's point of view it's that doesn't make sense at, at all um it's it is tricky maintaining people's interest in what you're trying to sort of how you try to advance the field um in in ways like this um but maybe that's again an, another role of having sort of discussions and platforms like this to start to start to, start to consider those things adam I'll put a link to the uh, letter that we're talking about, but are you able to just give a quick 
summary as to what was in that letter. I think the sort of more interesting issue for the moment for what I, I'm trying to discuss is more just the sort of tension between what's sort of pragmatic and what's uh, how a philosopher would think about it. So I think that the valuable thing philosophers can contribute is sort of adding a little bit more precision about not thinking that what's always pragmatically useful um, is going to sort of totally capture the phenomenon that we want to talk about. Um, but I do think there's a sense in which philosophers might go in a direction that would probably drive uh, not just most clinicians, but maybe most normal people <laughs> sort of, or, or sometimes makes their, you know, eyes roll back in the, their head and think, why is anyone worrying about this? But, you know, philosophers really like this sort of method of, of thought experiment of sort of, you know, even if something doesn't exist in the real world, let's imagine um, that there was a case like this and what, what implications should we draw from, from that um, imagining? And so um, I think in a case like this, where if you're trying to come up with a definition of pain, most scientists, I'm sure, would say, well, if you want to come up with a definition of pain, let's look at all the examples of pain in the real world. Um, but a philosopher might say, well, let's imagine this hypothetical being, or let's imagine artificial intelligence that has certain qualities. And so, you know, Roger's engaging in these types of questions too. Um, and then, you know, what, what does that tell us about this concept of pain? How should we change our concept in, in re relation to even these hypothetical cases? And so, you know, I think some people find that sort of frustrating and I can understand why in certain contexts, but I also think um, it can sometimes be helpful to sort of gain clarity about different issues that we're talking about or maybe bring out certain intuitions that we have. What, what do you think about the idea of, um, I mean, you're, you're obviously professionally involved in sort of, I don't know if you would call what you do applied philosophy or anything like that, but it seems to be yeah. that there's a direct relationship to, to, to the real world. But I, I know there's this philosophers, and I suppose it's the same in things like pure maths. If you say to somebody who deals in pure maths, you know, what are the practical implications of this? That they'll say, well, I don't, I don't want you to dirty pure maths by thinking about the real world. You know, it's a di that's over here and the real world's over here. Just don't never bring the two together because it's yeah. never intended for the real world and or something like that. I mean, is that the same as what you're sort of saying? You know, provide a definition of pain that's purely philosophical, but it's, it was never ever meant to have any sort of real world impact or something. Yeah. Um... Right. Well, I'm not, I'm not, I, yeah, I don't mean to imply that I'm advocating for that, that as the, the ideal approach, but there's, so there's definitely a tension in the field of philosophy. I think maybe it's sort of getting less as in recent years, but there's definitely a tension where, I mean, you go back 40 or 50 years and the idea of doing applied philosophy was just like completely like, you know, people would dismiss it as like, you know, why are you, why are you wasting your life on these real world questions, you know? Um, so, uh, and uh, yeah, I th and, and there's definitely remnants of that still, um, and, you know, tensions between different uh, aspects uh, in the field of philosophy. Uh, and and it, I think it's somewhat funny how it's evolved in a way, because uh, 
you know, within the discipline of philosophy, I think applied aspects were sort of looked down upon. And then now, because there's a lot more sort of funding, like for yeah. medical centers yeah. to apply, like bioethics or funding ethics of artificial intelligence, now there's like all this money flowing towards <laughs> the, the sort of field that was somewhat dismissed before. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's created interesting tensions. But, uh, but just in general, um, yeah, there, there is that, that sort of tension. And, and I've never, you know, taken it too seriously myself. I think it sounds like kind of similar to you. Like when you start asking or exploring interesting questions, you kind of, it's hard to just stay in one discipline, I think, or at least, at least from my perspective, if you're asking interesting questions about pain, you can't just kind of stay purely in one field. You sort of start to drift into all different types of areas. And so to me, the sort of interesting stuff always comes from following your questions wherever they go and not just trying to stick within one, you know, predefined discipline of, you know, so, so I, I, I've never really been drawn by the thought that you, that the interesting questions are all sort of purely within the field of philosophy. I've just, I've, I've sort of dealt with that a bit my, myself, tried, or tried to deal with it. Because we, we were sort of trying to look at this reconceptualization of what causation is, you know, real ontological thing. And because there were some, you know, I'm like schizophrenic really because I'm, I've got, I'm the clinician and trying to be this sort of thinker as well. But then there, there are other real clinicians as well, continually saying along that sort of process, well, what, you know, what, what's that going to add? What's the point of this? What does it, what does it matter? And all the time I'm, I'm sort of thinking, well, um, I can't keep thinking of those applications because, because they're going to spoil the progress we're making so i've got to i've got to sort it all out first philosophically and then and then go, and then go back to flights so matt matt lowe who laura knows obviously he's a real really um you know forward thinking physiotherapist and he took one of the sort of philosophical tools we uh developed uh and and started to sort of use it clinically it's like a, a clinical reasoning tool a thinking framework um, and I was really anxious of that because I, in my mind, I was like, well, we, it isn't complete yet philosophically. So don't, don't go, don't go ruin it to a, so is, is that tension again between, I don't know, at what point does an idea or a reconceptualization or a new definition become ready for practice or should practice inform it all, all the way through? One of, one of the first philosophical philosophy conferences I went to was um, up at Manchester Met University. Michael Lachlan organised it. He was an applied philosopher. Um, and it, it was all about logic and argument formation. And I remember sort of seeing this tension play out a bit there. And it was a room full of philosophers, but there were, there were some who just wanted to deal with logic uh, and some who wanted to look at applications of it. And it got, it got quite quite heated as I suppose as academics get <laughs> there's no fighting or anything but um it, you could feel that tension about you know stop talking about the real world while we deal with this and think about this and then so I think it's, it's really 
I think we, I think again, to make life easy as clinicians, we always want quick answers. And if something's, something looks like it's going to change or you say something needs to change, um, people will automatically say, well, well, what's the answer then? You know, if you're going to change it, what's the answer? And sometimes I don't think it works like that. You need to identify a problem and realize it is problematic and then spend time working seeing how that unfolds and it, it's quite a while before there's an answer or an alternative if at all but as clinicians we, we just desperately want the truth all the time and if, if something's wrong well what, what's the thing um and that you know i think that gets in the way of development really sometimes because then, then we feel inclined whether in science or humanities to to provide an alternative explanation of something very quickly to keep people's interest or, or whatever and, and I suppose over time that that makes real progress a bit slower. Um, the idea that you're sort of expected to provide an answer raises an interesting question too just in terms of sort of how you deal with patients where I would I would sort of guess that the sort of interaction between patients and clinicians would be one where they want you to exhibit a certain type of certainty or sort of being the expert. And so if you started asking, yeah. well, what is pain really <laughs> with, with, while you're treating someone, they might, they might be looking for, <laughs> looking for another <laughs> clinician pretty quickly. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you label the pain specialist. <laughs> in, in which case sometimes we open with that <laughs> I, mean, I don't know has there been any work done on a patient's perception I, I mean we we teach a lot of like socratic questioning and things like that to use in the you know in in communication with the patient See, with the assumption that it's a good a good thing um but I, I, I don't know, has there been any work done on patients' perceptions of going into a, a consultancy room and then being asked to find the, their own solutions to a problem? That, I'm sure there has, but we need to... It's been done in some medical fields, but I, I you know, it'd be interesting to know whether it's been done specifically for you know, pain treatment in particular. Yeah, which, which really only just goes to highlight the real lack of patient voices in our research, you know. <laughs> yeah. But do we need to be reconsidering our, our understanding of clinical ethics? I mean, I guess one thing that stands out to me, uh, just co from coming from the US originally, uh, is that, you know, there's this huge um, opioid epidemic in the US. And so I think that raises a lot of interesting questions about um, just sort of how patients are treated. And I mean, I, I guess the, the worry is if you, if you start questioning whether patients really need um, opioids or not, um, uh, does that create issues of trust between the, the patients and the providers? And, but, but also how do you sort of manage this process responsibly? And I think that gets into, you know, the this, this search for other types of treatments like Maybe you know the biosocial, biopsychosocial model might as an alternative to sort of over reliance on pain medication. So, um, so that's one issue where I see a lot of interesting sort of ethical questions coming up in terms of uh, the relationship. But I'm 
I'm guessing Roger will have a lot more, <laughs> a lot more to say about that. Well, no, I don't, I don't know if I do or not. I just think it's it's uh, a bit increasingly com confusion. But but I do think there is something in in that relationship between our evolving understanding of what pain is and and what that means in terms of ethical foundations, first of all, or the implications of it, and or how we conduct ourselves in in you know shop floor com communication. Um, I mean, sure, sure, the basic principles of bioethics would still exist, but it's, 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 what, it's, it's what they mean. Hey there. Need a little moment? Let me take a few seconds to tell you that this podcast is not supported or funded by anyone other than me. It's just me, fueled by far too much coffee. If you like it, and you want to support it, then please visit the Patreon site for Philosophers Chatting with Clinicians. So, before we get back to the podcast, here's a really bad joke. What happens when a frog's car breaks down? It gets towed! Okay, back to the real stuff. I guess what my train of thought here was a little bit about sort of narrative based medicine and mm. our understanding about cognition and environment um, and its ability to uh, the perceptual modulation of the pain experience and how much of that responsibility lies with within the, the therapeutic relationship in the clinical sort of field. I think what you know what are the kind of considerations that we should be having as as clinicians when we are working with a human with a person who is in pain knowing that we are part of the environmental factor that could be adding to or or affecting that pain uh, yeah that, yeah that's re that's really interesting i mean I, I think we've always assumed we are part of the um hmm, what part part for the painful experience from the view of tradition you know we, we thought ourselves as interventionists where we're going to offer something to to help somebody's painful experience so from that that point of view we've i guess we've always seen ourselves as part of the painful experience but i think what you're saying is is something quite different to that we're part of the sensory perceptual experience of somebody's consciousness and cognition and sometimes we don't realize what role we're having in that with with and that could be from anything from the words we use or the environment we're in or the nature of conversation we have or, or indeed the interventions we have we 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 provide um i thought that was really interesting as well and hopefully this links to to this so some again some more of adam's work which was the, on the you know the the juxtapositioning of of, of um, cognition in in the painful experience, um, and we, we, so if, if cognition is truly a core core part of whatever terminology you, you use, um, then what does that mean? You know, what other parts of cognition relate relate to pain as as well, and all the I. The, the formation of ideas in a patient, um, 
new understanding of themselves, the relationship with the patient. So, so yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually. There are all, the, all those things that we don't understand or don't even start to think of, of the impact we're having on somebody's cognition or consciousness in, in that environment, which would have been simpler a few years ago because we didn't, you know, we had a different understanding of, of, of pain. So, um, and how, how quick, how how rapidly does this uh you know i'm 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 you know a bayesian at heart as well i really like the stuff you've said about that adam and, and mick thacker's work on predictive processing how 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 quickly do those new does that ba little bayesian loop work is is that in real time with the patients so for all, all the information they're getting is changing their experience and, and the next bit of information is going to um feed into that I, th I think that offers some really nice ways of thinking about what's going on in real time i mean yeah just so just to back up a little i mean i think there's huge amount of evidence that different cognitive processes have a huge influence on how pain um is experienced so if you have an expectation of pain that'll increase how how much pain you feel from the same stimulus or um, if you've had some sort of negative experiences in a certain environment in the past, that'll increase your, how unpleasant you find the pain. If you have anxiety, that'll increase uh, how unpleasant you find the pain. So there are all kinds of things that I think would be sort of classified as, you know, cognitive or psychological processes that, that affect um, people's experience of pain. And of course, a lot of those things are going to be really relevant to the, the whole clinical interaction and, and the best way of of um, treating people's pains. Um, and I think maybe one thing that um, is helpful from the sort of incorporating this, these sort of different terminology is that I think, I think sometimes the word psychological can kind of make people um, be dismissive about the reality of pain. So if, if you say, oh, well, pain, you know, this person just, there are psychological reasons why uh, this person thinks they're in pain. Um, sometimes the connotation of that is that, oh, it's all in their head or that, the, you know, that if they just change something about themselves, uh, then they wouldn't really be in pain. And so they're sort of making too big a deal about it. And so I think what's interesting about all this neuroscience work that's connecting all these psychological factors to things happening in the brain is that it, it brings together the subjective aspect of the experience with these objective processes and, and makes it more clear that even though it's cognitive or psychological, it's not, um, it's not psychological in the sense that the person is choosing to have that experience or that they could just make some easy tweaks and everything would be fine. It's, it's still sort of a deeply ingrained part of their experience that, that requires a lot of thought and to, to treat. Um, and so, um, so anyways, I guess uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think, I think what's really interesting about all this recent work connecting um, aspects of cognition to uh, these subjective experiences is that it, it shows that um, these psychological factors need to be studied a lot more and, um, and that the, the fact that people are more sensitive to pain than other people isn't really a revealing about something about their character or them, you know, choosing to, to not confront things, but rather sort of 
you know, more deeply ingrained facts about how the, how the human brain works. And so, um, you know, we, do, we need to better understand how the human brain is, is shaped by these interactions so that we can, we can better treat it. Just out of interest, Adam, how, how much, again, impossible question, I know, but how much of that further explanation could be provided by neuroscience and how much needs to be provided by philosophy or something? Or, or will eventually everything be explained by neuroscience? Or <laughs> uh, yeah, well, don't take my view to be representative of what other philosophers would think, but I, I sort of think, I mean, not, not neuroscience specifically, but I, I do think the sciences are gonna ultimately provide a lot of the answers about the best way to shape people's experiences at the clinicians or, you know, as they're getting treatment and the best way to, to get better results. Um, so, so I would think that that would sort of be the, the end state, but along the way, I think, um, you know, there are going to be questions that need to be grappled with where there, you know, there's no obvious, um, scientific path and until you sort of grappled with some of the other questions, but, but I don't know. I mean, I guess, so again, like this, this question of how you, how you define a term versus what's relevant uh, in terms of treating someone. So um, if you say pain has this cognitive component, um, it, I mean, there are a lot of things that shape how human beings experience pain that are very sophisticated cognitive processes, right? So if, if, um, I had some memory of some event that happened to me in my childhood that can shape how I experience some painful event in the future. But I think it's a mistake in terms of thinking that it's, that's an essential component to what the nature of pain is because uh, it may be non-human animals don't have that sophisticated cognitive apparatus or even you know human infants don't yet have the ability to form uh, these really like certain types of memories. So I think, so I think it, there's a sort of divergence a little bit between how the philosopher might think of pain and what, what is sort of clinically relevant. And so I do think a lot of some of these types of questions about the best way to treat pain might um, drift a little, away a little bit from how philosophers of mind might think about questions about pain, but they, they nevertheless drift into um, important ethical questions about what the best way, how, how the, the best way to approach something is. So for example, um, the stuff about cognitive influences of pain is really interesting in relation to placebos mm -hmm. because placebos have a really bad name in a lot of mm -hmm. aspects of bioethics because the idea is you're giving something that doesn't have any um, power to actually uh, change the thing and you're telling people, you know, and people are believing that it's doing something uh, and so, you're, you're, you know, the idea is that you're being deceptive. But in the case of pain, it's really interesting because placebos actually can make people feel better. Mm. And if the thing you're trying to treat is the fact that they're in pain and you give them a placebo and they feel better, um, is it the case that you've deceived them or are you actually doing what you were supposed to be doing by treating them? So I think, I think 
these ethical questions are sort of always going to come up um, and I think get especially interesting as we're learning more about the role that these psychological factors play and, and how people have, have experiences. Yeah, yeah, I mean, hopefully, I, I would, I don't know, but I think at least some parts of the clinical world are, are readjusting their attitude towards like placebo and seeing it as 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 part of the therapeutic um, package. Um, and it, it doesn't help when you, you know you continually get placebo controlled trials and stuff trying to trying to work out which bit of the, the package is active and not active and then all these words come out and the non-specific effects and all this sort of stuff but like you say you know what are we trying to what are we trying to do here um and it's often used as a bit of a a, a stick to bash non-scientific uh conversations within things like, like this so um but but hopefully that's that's um there's some change on the horizon with regards to to to, to concepts like placebo um perhaps we shouldn't even be using the word word anymore and things so the the changes you would like to see roger would be sort of more acknowledgement of the ways in which different non-specific effects might sort of benefit treatment or, or what do you think? Well, I, I think if you're going to continue on that sort of re reductionist um, method to, to work out what what works and not, so, I mean, first of all, you, you've got to sort of ask things like, well, what, what, what a minute, if, you, if you're saying placebo is some sort of non-specific effect, but we know placebo is so then you've got to define what you mean by non-specific because we know placebo does have a specific neurological um, effect. So why, why pick on placebo? Why not pick on another known active component of, of the thing? So if you take paracetamol or something and it's got three chemical components in it, why not pick on one of them? You know, why not choose chemical component A versus the other two chemical components plus placebo. They're all specific effects. So what's the big deal with like pick, picking on this thing? You know, it, it's it's sort of, um, we're still quite a few decades behind I, I thinking with, with that. Um, so yeah, I think what I'd like to see is just a more, uh, it doesn't need to be a holistic in some sort of alternative sense at all, but but an appreciation of of like like you say what we're trying to achieve here and by what means can we do that, um, and what do we need to know about the human and and the world in order to to achieve that, and I think some reductionist methods have a role in all of this, but they don't they don't necessarily need to dictate um, the the, the sort of strategy or the policy or, or whatever. Um, when you say reductionist, can you just clarify that just in case somebody doesn't know what that means? Well, just, I mean, for, for example, you know, a, a randomized control trial breaking down different components to, to ex examine them against each other. So you're reducing something into its component parts and, and, and testing against each other. You know, a, a, traditional characteristic of science it's necessary 
uh, in, is, um, but depending on what you think and believe and read, it, it can separate us from from a real world, which which is uh, involves complexity and context sensitivity, and is, is holistic in in so much as a person with pain in the real world is exposed to all that complexity and, and context sensitive uh, variables working together. So if you've reduced all those variables down to test them and you've come up with some answers about, well, if you separate, if you control this from that, then this happens, but that's not what happens in the real world because you haven't controlled this from that, that, that variable still works. So our reductionist methods that, that separate component parts and test them against each other allow us to understand a, a bit more scientifically about the effects of certain things, but they don't necessarily allow us to understand what's happening in a context sensitive complex env environment outside of that trial. And then the, the sort of sci scientist answer to that is, well, we can we can still use things like randomised control trials to to we don't need to break them down. We can we can have a pragmatic randomised control trial. But again, by definition of the methodology, there's still some control there. And and um, so I guess the point I'm getting to is that from a sort of research program, it would be better um, if you know, the humanities and the sciences sort of joined together a bit more. And I don't just mean things like, well, have a qualitative arm to a randomized control trial or something. I mean, you know, genuine hum humanities, uh, not just research, but thinking as, as, as well, should be an, an integral part of what we, of what we do scientifically. That's really interesting and uh, a super, super valuable perspective, um, even independently of, of saying, you know, there should be more jobs for humanities. <laughs> I think the, the, the general point about um, how complex, you know, all these context specific um, effects are and how that impacts treatment and, and the, the sort of divergence between that and, and what you can find out in RCTs, randomized control trials, um, is, is a really interesting thing to, to think about. Easy question. Um, what do you think that it is to be in pain? <laughs> That's your easy question. Yeah, this is what I ask every patient. <laughs> because without asking that, knowing that pain is so unique to the individual, if we're not asking our patients what they think it means to be in pain, then we've got no idea as to what they even think pain is. <laughs> But yeah, that's my easy question to you guys. Professional thinkers, as you are. Um, so I think, I think there's a, the, you know, so the, the IESP definition of pain um, includes a sort of mention of a sensory dimension and an affective dimension of pain. And then I think there's these interesting questions about where people say that they there are these weird cases uh, where people say that they still have a pain, but it doesn't bother them anymore. They don't find it unpleasant. And so I think that's an interesting question of whether that still counts as pain or not. 
And I guess, so, so coming from that sort of ethicist perspective, to me, the interesting bit of pain, part of pain is this affective component or the unpleasantness. So I sort of think of the central component of pain or the, the central way of defining pain as a certain type of uh, unpleasant experience that, um, that, that we can sort of recognize as being the same across different types of cases. Um, but uh, coming up with a more precise definition of that than that, I think is really difficult in that I don't think we know what's going on, going, uh, uh, what's happening uh, physiologically uh, enough to provide any sort of physiological way of supporting that. And then you also get into these really tricky questions about, well, should we count emotional pains as pains or should we count um, a breakup feeling bad because of a breakup as a pain, you know, all, all types of things like that. So, uh, so I think it gets really tricky. And, and I think the best thing we can say about it is just sort of, you know it when you experience it and you kind of have this kind of group of things that you lump together as being the same, but, uh, uh, and it, it's fundamentally an experience, I think. Uh, it's not fundamentally uh, some physiological process, but yeah, I don't know. That's not a very good definition, but. <laughs> oh, no, that was lovely because my follow-up question to this is, are emotional and physical pains the same or are they different? <laughs> are they still, is emotional pain still pain? There's a huge part of, I mean, I would say there's a lot of people within our industry that very convincingly would say that emotional pain is a, is just, is just, and I'm, say that word very lightly knowing how powerful it is but it is pain and um but yet it feels very fundamentally different and then there's a, a, another population of of the the sort of community that would say actually emotional pain is dis is emotional distress but we're using the language of pain to communicate a kind of level of suffering that is more acceptable to the medical industry that really only values physical pain so i i, I don't know what 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 would your opinion be on, on these things? Yeah, I, I think I would lump in certain types of emotional pains as genuine pains. So um, I think if you see someone else that you care about in pain and you feel bad as a result, I would sort of just think of that as kind of being painful, like a pain, you're having a pain yourself, an empathetic pain. And I also think um social exclusion or sort of feeling bad about breakups or certain types of things um i i think are close enough to to count as pains and um the the story that i find sort of compelling about that was a study from uh eisenberger and lieberman um where they had people in an fmri scanner where they thought they were playing a game uh with two other people and they were passing a ball uh, to, with each other. And then at some point, um, it's actually, it's not actually playing against two other people, it's just a computer program. But at some point, um, the ball just keeps getting passed back and forth among the other participants. And so the person feels left out. And so the person who got left out feels bad as a result of it. And if you look at what's happening in their brain, it's sort of the same affective brain regions that are involved in normal pains. Now there's some controversy about the, the experiment, um, I think, you know, some people were, were sort of critical of, as part of this overall sort of critique of um, statistics and fMRI testing, but I, I think it's been sort of validated enough times where I'm reasonably confident in it. But 
I guess the thing I thought was interesting about it was this story that Eisenberger and Lieberman told about how um, they think that there was sort of this evolved pain system and that that's, that same system uh, sort of w was used in mammalian contexts where uh, to sort of help um, encourage sort of pro-social behavior. So for example, um, if you damage some of these pain brain regions, um, uh, mammalian mothers will sort of no longer respond to the alarm cries of their infants. Um, and and so, the, so the idea of the story is that um, there was this already this kind of pain system in place and then by, by making it responsive to these certain types of social events, then it, it could it could kind of motivate certain behavior that would be adaptive in social species. Um, and I don't know, I guess I, I find it sort of a, a plausible enough story where it makes sense to me to say, well, yeah, it's still the pain system, but evolutionarily it sort of just got adapted to, to apply to these other types of cases. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting point because, you know, we, we know that, you know, <clears throat> one of the, the beautiful things about our, neuro like plastically plastic neurosystem is that parts that are responsible for one job can adapt to be responsible for other jobs and maybe some of the parts that are very involved within our experience of pain are also very involved in our experience of social exclusion and that would that would make a lot of sense for me because a lot of our um the people we work with that go on to experience persistent pain or have persistent pain their whole lives also have a, a kind of uh, often have a shared history of social exclusion and social stigma that just increases as the symptoms of pain reduce the sort of social functionality of that human being even more. Yeah. So, and then it's quite easy to see how that can be just constantly feeding a system that's already doing multiple jobs, maybe. Yeah, interesting. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, great questions and great, great comments. And again, it highlights this thing about, you know, all sorts of things, text on, on any definition. Um, and uh, the wide breadth of things that belong under the word, the word pain. Um, so obviously, we need to continue working on w what we mean by those, those definitions, but also the sort of flip side of that is trying to think about not not the the variance in in what different experiences of under this thing called pain are, but also what the you know what yeah, can we ever get to the essence of 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 pain or these experiences. If you think of something like, you know, you look at low back pain and low back pain is, is one common thing. And we group people with low back pain together and, and we do research on them and we treat them and things like that. But if you look at those, you know, those studies, uh, Martin Rabies, Mary O'Keefe stuff, and, you, and the, the things that create change in those people are so varied. So every, every, everybody with low back pain will respond to something different. There is no treat, there's no single intervention for low back pain. So is is the low back pain, have we got the have we got it right here? Have we got the taxonomy right here? Is, is there something else that is the the commonality with all those people? And we've just been sidetracked by something called pain and low back pain. Is it is it social exclusion? Is it is it something else? And we just 
we're 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 accustomed to to packaging people as as low back pain and things like this. So um, you know, this is where this is where those reduction in methods can can reveal really really exciting things. And don't get me wrong for a minute, I'm not not opposed to any of the scientific methods at all. And I'm a scientist, but it's it's how you interpret the information. And rather than saying something like, oh, there's, those RCTs were done on low back pain and nothing seems to work, it's not that at all. It's, well, this has exposed another phenomena about what we even understand pain to be or not be. Um, and, you know, what, what is that? What, what is the essence of it? Um, what is the essence of pain, Laura? answers on a postcard yeah. <laughs> so we've sort of kind of concluded that we don't really know what pain is <laughs> great lots to do then so if, but we are you know so what does it mean then to be to either to treat someone or to be treated by someone what is that what's that all about <laughs> it, it's strange isn't it that that whole idea of treatment, you know, words like treatment and words like patient and, and therapist are, are well, I, I think, increasing, increasingly problematic. Um, you know, immediately you've reinforced some, some, some assumptions there and understandings of things like the role people play. And um, I know this has been said before, and again, it's a, it's a nod to dear old... Uh, Stephen Tyman, who unfortunately re recently died, but he was a very forward-thinking osteopath, and he once said this thing about, you know, just the word patient implies a lot of things, and, and one of the things it implies is a lack of agency. Um, so if then if then you're then you're putting yourself forward as somebody who can treat somebody with this complete lack of agency. Um, what is it to treat somebody gosh you know it's why why are we using that 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 terminology it's very paternalistic isn't it and it goes against the, the whole you know the, what what we're increasing the understanding about what what pain is um and to be treated by somebody again just just that it reinforces that whole historical model of 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 the good doctor and everything i don't i you know i don't, I don't even think we should be using that terminology i think we should revise the way we position ourselves in all sorts of ways it's not a, a modern characteristic of society that we try to somehow deliver the antidote to pain so it seems almost quite innate within a human condition that we have pain and then we try to get rid of it is pain therefore an essential um characteristic of of being being human so if you strip away pain so let's say we've found the successful antidote to pain what does then that do to the human condition you know are we are we trying to fight something that doesn't need fighting because it is such a central and essential part of of be of what being human is um and i suppose that comes back to then that that 
the thing about well what what is your what does it mean to you being in pain and if it's unpleasantness then then okay we might be able to mediate some of that but um actually pain is a life enhancing experience that we should maybe reframe what we think about that pain yeah i i was i was thinking about that too for the the, the treatment question um which is just i mean so i think in in a lot of ethical thinking and philosophy, pain would be something that would be classified as intrinsically bad, right? So that it me so that it's something that, in general, would be you know all thing all other things being equal, um, it would be better for you not to have a pain than to have a pain. Uh, but of course, we know that pains are very um, important, or sort of they they've been an important part of human experience, and that they can help shape character and they and overcoming great suffering is sort of a, you know a, a classic element of of stories about you know the best people and and you know being transformed through suffering into into something better um, so so i think it gets at yeah really tough interesting questions about how how we want to think about pain and um, would it would it be would we really want to live in a world where there's no pain um, and i think um, yeah, the answer to that probably would be no, but you might nevertheless think that, I mean, as, as Laura was saying, you know, nevertheless, throughout history, we're, we, we've been trying to, you know, we've had this experience and have tried to, to get rid of it. And, and I guess even part of that transformative journey is, is not just saying, oh, well, there's suffering and I'm going to just be okay with it. It's sort of like, trying to make sense of it or, or come to terms with it or, or conquer it or maybe that's not the right word but you know deal with it in a certain type of way um so um yeah so i, I don't know i guess it's, it's it's a very thought-provoking question of of how how we should view pain in this in this broader sense but in general i think i i would think most people could agree that there are a lot of people who do have painful conditions where it really is debilitating it really is sort of interfering with other aspects of their lives and i would think most of us would agree that well yeah in those cases we really do want to get those people to a place where they feel like it's not interfering with how they how they want to live so and that feels very different to the concept of treatment actually and probably more in line with where we're coming now as a as a community of healthcare clinicians that are really trying to change the way we do things it's rather than constantly focusing on okay there's the pain how do we get rid of the pain because maybe that is what we've been trying to do for thousands of years and we've never really managed to do it how do we in this particular part of, of our maybe our like I don't know if it's the right word but like anthropological relationship with pain our sort of like human over the time over over the ages relationship with pain maybe this is a, a another phase where we're sort of starting to try to develop a new relationship with how we we yeah with with it with pain with how we work with pain. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I would think so. You know, if you just followed the recent, even just if you followed the recent scientific trajectory on that, I think it's taken us to more of a place like that. But as, as we've all established, the problem is along with that, we're still thinking of interventions for pain 
rather than changing that that relationship um and and again i think that's a really nice example of where if you if you take that change our relationship with pain which is a really nice sort of framing of it you're not going to do that um without the help of um you know the social sciences the cognitive sciences philosophy um that that's whole wholesale cultural shift um I, I, I do i do think things like the mass media call some mass media campaigns you know again mary o'keefe's commentaries on that sort of thing they're really compelling and and will move us forward a bit but it, but it's even more than that it's not just it's not just a media campaign it is it's it's deeper than that well i think that's going to bring me towards a kind of last question if it's okay because it's already we're already sort of moving on for time i don't know you've all got busy days um so i have one question for both of you if you could sort of create a way of making sure that everybody knew one thing that would sort of maybe move us on or change the world or 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 change our human experience of the world if, if you could sort of implant this one piece of knowledge into everyone's brain or mind what would it be another easy question <laughs> um become a bayesian and realize that everything we see now whether it's new data or new experiences is contextualized with with what we've got and that that's not just for pain or research it's uh, general i think we'd make a lot more sense of everything ranging from the outcomes of a trial to a painful experience if we appreciated the fact that that was um you know there were there was that is contextualized by what's happened before and we um individually and professionally we respond to things like data too rapidly in some cases and say things like did you see that that that's that's changed that then hasn't it um that, and that's not the way the world works at all be more bayesian <laughs> so there you go how about you adam uh, okay so in in classic philosophical style i'm gonna take your question in a in a in a, in a weird direction uh, that you know does not not apply we like weird because you, you didn't specify that it had to be an actually possible thing so no no and we like weird weird is okay it's uh weird is good <laughs> so i i guess i would like it to be the case that uh people could have implanted in their brain the ability to sort of know what other people are feeling when other people uh, or, or i guess maybe just other beings in general not just other people are experiencing pain um, because I think you know I think it's easy to sort of uh, you know not have empathy towards others in certain situations or to think that they're sort of over exaggerating their feelings or, or that type of thing or to sort of downplay the emotions of others um, and I guess um, you know we, we started this conversation from I think the assumption that it's good to treat pain in some in, in many cases, but I, I do think really like, uh, you know, eliminating suffering or reducing the amount of suffering in the world is is just such a hugely important ethical issue. And, and I feel like we'd all be a lot better at it if we, if we were 
more capable of empathizing and sort of experiencing, uh, or you know, if we directly felt what others were going through when when they're uh, in certain situations. So. I agree. I I think although I can see some sort of some challenges with being able to experience everybody's uh, experience of pain. I can I can understand why pain is in, is a, a unique thing because if we are all walking around with our own pain. And so if everybody was feeling everybody's, I don't know how successful we would be as a society. <laughs> but uh, well, but we'd, I, we'd be capable of doing it, not that we would always be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I, honestly, I think I could have this conversation go on for like another three hours. That <laughs> but I don't think that would be very helpful for, for you. So um, thank you very much for, you know, giving your time and sort of trusting in the sort of idea of getting together and having a chat without actually knowing really what was going on or what we were trying to achieve. <laughs> so I've really enjoyed it. This is exactly what I was hoping this would be. I, don't, I hope other people enjoy it and I hope that you've enjoyed it and, and maybe uh, found something helpful from it or, or if you think there's any feedback onto what, what we could do differently next time, that would be appreciated. It's been great. Thanks, Laura. <laughs> Thank you. I'm just really happy that we were able to spend this time and um, that I was able to follow a lot of the conversation, which is also <laughs> always a bonus. <laughs> So, uh, so yeah, is there anything that you want to say just before we finish? Is there any sort of like parting stuff or are you happy with where we are? Yeah, just thank, thank you to both of you. It's been great. It's been great to talk to you, Adam, and meet, meet you, e-meet you. And thanks, Laura, again for, for this idea. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're not too far from each other. So hopefully we'll run into yeah, yeah. each other in the, in the future yeah. sometimes. So be nice. But I, I do have to run to a um, talk in a minute. Uh, down the okay. Hall. So, <laughs> but I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed talking to both of you. So, all right.